You're listening to Business Weekly on Intelligence Squared. Today, we're talking nudge theory with economist and author Richard Thaler. It was part of an online event we did, which is why you'll hear some audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it. Here's host Kamal Ahmed with more. Now, lots of books are claimed to be one of the books of the century. This book genuinely is one of the books of the century. I read Nudge first time when it first came out a decade ago, and it genuinely changed the way I thought, as it did for many people, whether they were government, whether they were business, whether they were third sector civil society. It made, for the first time, behavioral economics mainstream. And it really did move the dial on how we understood the world around us. This, of course, is not his only book, but is co-authored with his brilliant and witty colleague, as is Richard. And just reading the book brings that across Kaz Sustein. So, Richard, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here. Could I kick off just for those who have possibly lived on another planet uh, over the past decade? When you first wrote Nudge, what were the key things you wanted people to understand from the thesis you laid out in that book 10 years ago? Well, I, I guess there are two. One is that when we're designing any kind of situation in which people make decisions, we have to be conscious of the fact that the decision makers are humans. So in the book, we, do, we make the distinction between humans and the people economists study, homo economicus, who we call econs. And econs don't really need any help. They wouldn't need a GPS device because they would know how to get to where they're going. But us humans sometimes get lost and could use a little help. So that was one thing. The second is that we wanted to entertain the idea that it was possible to help decisions without forcing anyone to do anything. So we wanted to create this sort of middle ground of intervention and say, at least some of the time, we can make things better in, in this way. And I guess the, the third thing is to introduce this idea of choice architecture, that the, the environment in which people choose influences the decisions that they make. And I think uh, perhaps one of the big differences between this new and final edition of Nudge is we try very hard to bring choice architecture into the foreground. One of the downsides of the clever title, one of the publishers who rejected the book suggested to us, is that when people think of nudges, they, they, they think it's a book about tweaks. And we, we really think it's about uh, the big picture of all the things that go into you making a decision about some, something. I think, Richard, that's one of the most interesting points, is that I think that the title can sometimes belie the content and the bigger arguments you were making. Um, yeah, maybe we should have maybe we should have stuck with libertarian paternalism is not an oxymoron. I, uh, you know, it doesn't <laughs> I don't think it would have sold as well, Richard, personally. <laughs> yeah, ten, tens can, of copies I, I, probably. I can understand your publisher slightly blanching at your original um, idea for the title, but 
talk us through this idea. You, you touched on choice architecture already, and I think it's interesting what you say around the point you make about not wanting to have to force people to do things. But given some of the challenges that we face now that weren't as salient 10 years ago, many people would say that could be a failing of behavioral economics if we think about things like climate climate change, for example. But let's get to that a little later on. Why the need for a refresh? You touched on it there, but was it not a perfectly formed book 10 years ago? And if there is a need for a refresh, how do you know that in 10 years' time, there may not be a need for another refresh? Oh, uh, I think it's distinctly possible that in another 10 years, the, the book will seem stale. But I think it's not possible that I will be in the mood to do it again. So the title was uh, what we call a commitment strategy. You know, Ulysses tied himself to the mast and I'm tying myself to the mast and saying, I'm never going to do this again. Why did we do it? Well, one reason is that it took someone 18 months to notice that our contract with the paperback publisher had expired 18 months ago. And when they made that discovery, it was April of 2020. And there wasn't a lot to do. And I'm normally quite lazy, but I was bored. So the publisher asked for a few tweaks. And as we say in the, in the introduction, we fell for the while you're at it heuristic that is familiar to anybody who's done a home improvement project. And so we kind of got carried away, but there were some big points that we wanted to make. And one which, as you say, we'll get to in a few minutes, is to stress that we don't think that nudging can solve every problem. And in fact, we think that choice architecture and nudging can help almost any problem, but is rarely the, the solution to any problem as well. So, it's an important part of the portfolio of things we as a society do for any problem, be it climate change or COVID or traffic or voting systems. I mean, if you think about the controversy in the UK about first past the post, that's a choice architecture problem. And there are good arguments for doing it either way. And... For personally, I find rank-ordered voting to be a compelling, a significantly better method. But given that the two large parties fear what would happen if it switches, it's also not surprising that it hasn't changed. Let's go into some of those big themes and how an understanding of choice architecture, behavioral economics, libertarian paternalism whatever it might be, can, can help? And can it ever do enough? Or how does it help? And what other things do we need, maybe more accurately? Let's, let's, let's start with the existential crisis, uh, climate change. There are lots of great examples in the book of where a choice architecture can lead to substantial um, uh, differences in the way that people approach consumption and the world around us. The famous, the famous one, of course, of the towels in the, in the hotel. But I'm sure that's one of those where you think the the easy um, um, the easy example has slightly overtaken the rather bigger points you were making. But one of the criticisms might be in, in this area is that this is not really a matter for um, 
nudge or behavioral economics, because in the end, the responsibility lies with governments and with global corporations. And in the end, it is about forcing either individuals or companies or ultimately governments to do the right thing to save the planet. Because if we wait for, some would argue even, democracy or parliaments or nudge to deliver, we'll still be talking about this problem in 50 years time and it'll even be even more dangerous then. How do you respond to that notion that nudge as a lever is only really a minor point of something like the climate change debate? Well, so uh, let me just pick up on one thing you said, that we can't just leave it to governments. We have to force someone to do something. Well, that, that we just we don't have that option. There, there's no power, you know, that we can call out to and say, please get all the big countries in the world to agree to enforce the Paris Accord or some new, even better version. So let's start with the fact that it is a behavioral problem and that the actors are include individuals. They also include large multinational corporations and they include governments. So one of the things we stress in the book is a first order problem is how do we create the cooperation necessary to get the relevant countries to, to play ball. And, you know, a very important point of, uh, in behavioral economics is the idea that people put enormous weight on what they think is fair. And economists often ignore that. They think fairness is kind of a, is a silly thing that it's the sort of thing that kids say that it's not fair that my brother got marbles and I, I got some Legos. But fairness is important. And there's a, a big issue which is the rich countries, like in North America and Europe, got rich via carbon emissions. Not only, but that was a tool they had. Countries like China and India and Brazil and others are catching up, uh, and they're doing it the same way. And they are emitting more per capita now than the rich countries. But if we look up there and count the carbon molecules in the atmosphere, uh, those of us from rich countries have more with our names on them. So uh, what's fair now? And there, there's no one answer to that. But unless we figure out a way for uh, Europe and the United States and Japan, Korea, and so forth to make an agreement with India, China, Brazil, and uh, others, we're not going to get anywhere. Now, the second point, we, we start the chapter by saying step one must be to get the prices right. So I'm putting my real economist hat on and saying something that I don't know of any economist who disagrees that the best way to make progress would be 
a carbon tax or cap and trade, and the differences are minor in this context. Uh, Sweden has shown that it's possible to do it. Uh, their economy uh, looks quite good, and their emissions are quite low. But at least in the U.S., there's a uh, the one thing Democrats and Republicans are united about is their opposition to a carbon tax. The Republicans, because they don't like anything that has the word tax, and the Democrats, especially the progressive part of the Democrats, and especially people with a strong environmental fervor, don't like taxes because they don't think they're high enough. Now, this is a position that I don't find it easy to understand. Uh, you have to start somewhere. And But in any case, there we are. So we're not going to have those. And what we end up with are things like commitments to be carbon neutral by some date that have no teeth. And um, they're, they're very awkward. So, so anyway, the people don't think of diplomacy as a behavioral problem, but that's, of course, exactly what it is. It's people in a room making some agreement and then selling it to, to the people back home. Now, at the level of individual behavior, there are what we traditionally think of as nudges, telling people how much electricity they use compared to their neighbors, defaulting people into green energy. These things work. The effect sizes are relatively small, on the order of magnitude of 2%. So it's easy to say, look, nudges, you know, it's small potatoes. We have a we have a existential threat, and you guys are talking about one or two percent. And when discussing this in the book, we quote President Obama, who Cass worked for, he had a line which is better is good. So if we can reduce emissions by two percent, we should do it, especially if it's free. But we're not going to get where we need to go that way exclusively, but every 2% counts. So we think we should set prices right, and we should nudge, and uh, we should use all the tools we have to get nations to agree. And if we do all of those things, then our grandchildren have some chance. And if we don't, they won't. Do you feel optimistic that our grandchildren have some chance or do you feel given that nudge and this doesn't mean that it's not relevant may only be able to affect two to three percent? And as you say, that's better than not having two or three percent. Do you feel optimistic that the big levers will also be pulled? You know, I'm not optimistic in the short run. I'm, I'm optimistic about technology and I'm I'm an optimist by nature. I'm married to a pessimist. My And my best friend, Danny Kahneman, is a world champion pessimist. So I'm surrounded by pessimists. So I have to be an optimist just to balance out the, <laughs> the world order. Uh, but, you know, I think there can be big changes that give us some hope. But I would be much more confident if we, uh, you know, we just had a 
had an agreement. We'll, we'll see whether it has any teeth for a global corporate tax. If we could have $50 a ton carbon tax around the world, that would make me more optimistic. Now, that's not high enough, but would be a good place to start. Let's move on, Richard, to the other great global event we've been living through over the past nearly two years now, which is, of course, is COVID. And when you look at the fact that whether you wear a mask or not has become, at least for some people, a question of politics, not a question of science. How could that be framed using the skills of choice architecture where we could create norms, as you say, choice architecture is often about creating norms that people then follow to help us, this is something you touch on in your book, to help us help people make the right decision about wearing a mask. Yeah, you know, I think maybe the most distressing part of this whole experience has been the politicalization of dealing with COVID and even more so on the vaccinations than the masks. How um, a political party can not support vaccinations is just kind of beyond my comprehension. Now, I, you know, when it, when it comes to masks, I do think it's relatively easy to change habits. At my university, we opened about a month ago. It's required that everybody be vaccinated. And, you know, we wear a mask when we're in the building, except when we're eating. You know, we're all kind of used to it, just like we're used to queuing two meters apart when we're waiting to get in a shop. And so we can get used to things. I do think, though, and again, my view on this is similar to my view on climate change. Sometimes you have to go beyond nudging. And so the requirement that everybody be vaccinated at the university is not a nudge. That's a requirement. Now, no one has to go to school here. There are thousands of universities in the U.S. and around the world. People are free to go somewhere else. Same with faculty. And uh, I, I think employers should be encouraged to have a mandate of vaccination. Personally, I just taught a class with 95 students who came from all over in person in one room. And I would not have done that unless I was assured that everyone was vaccinated. So I, I think we've reached the point where the people who are unvaccinated are not expressing their liberty. They are expressing their disregard for their fellow human beings. And I like to compare what happened with smoking. That, um, you know, 50-some years ago, it became clear that smoking was hazardous to smokers and to people who had to consume that smoke. I'm old enough to remember when there was smoking allowed on airplanes. You had to sit in the back if you were a smoker, but that's also where the bathrooms were. And, of course, the flight attendants had to be everywhere. So we now accept that there's hardly anywhere you can smoke except in 
outside or in your home. And I think if you're unvaccinated, you're just like a smoker puffing on a big cigar and uh, you should be treated the same way. Are there ways like climate change, though, where nudge can help? Because there's there's sort of anti-vaxxers and that's a term that has been put together to describe maybe that more politicized approach. But also there is vaccine hesitancy, we might call it, which is a different type of individual or groups of individuals who are hesitant about taking a vaccine. Is, is there a different approach for those types of groups? I can see the point of requirement at, at some points in this discussion, but like climate change, how would nudge help us on vaccine hesitancy rather than what might be described as anti-vaxxers? Yeah. So I think certainly in the US, we were we went through three stages. In the first stage, there was excess demand for vaccines. So it was all about who could get a vaccine. Then, then we went through a period where hesitancy and inconvenience were the big issues. And then we got to the obstinance. Now, the interesting, and, and I think nudging and things like just, you know, my mantra, make it easy, convenience and small, you know, people giving people a, a pint if they get vaccinated, that works for the hesitant. It won't work for the anti-vaxxers. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. The interesting thing is we're now entering stage four with boosters. So I'm thricely vaccinated now. I'm just barely old enough. But if we're going to end up asking or recommending that everybody get a third vaccine, we're going to be back in the world where nudging is going to be a big help. Even, you know, I got a text from the place where I got my first two shots saying, we think you're eligible for a booster. Would you like to come in? Okay, that's nudging. And let's start with that. Let's move on, Richard, to I think the, the third big bucket put in 
those huge global themes that we're wrestling with and sometimes feel that we don't have the levers to know how to uh, navigate the new world. And that's social media. And you write in your book, much of the time, more money can be made catering to human frailties than by helping people avoid them. When you look at how social media uh, or the critics of social media describe firms that they say are relying very much on the notion of human frailty rather than helping people be better. And the role of algorithms now in nudging people to consume certain types of content. And if they do, then consume more of it. That is obviously something that has developed since you wrote your first book. How has that shaped your thinking about the role of nudge? Because algorithms and influencers may have more power in the world than any other form of choice architecture. Well, you know, I think algorithms are like any tool that they can be used for good or evil. So, you know, for over a decade, I've been signing copies of the book Nudge for Good, which was meant as a plea. And if I, when I write my machine learning book, it will be <laughs> algo for good. I'm an algorithm fan. If I listen to music on Spotify, they have a feature called Discover Weekly, which is a playlist created by an algorithm just for me. I think it's great. And it's a way for me to learn about new music. Uh, apparently, there are bands since the Rolling Stones. So, you know, it's, it's good, good to know about that. Uh, and there's lots of research suggesting that almost any decision can be done better by an algorithm than by an expert. There, there's a, a very nice study showing that judges who make decisions about whether to have people who have been arrested required to stay in jail or released on bail, they don't release enough people and they release the wrong people. And an algorithm would release more people and have less crime committed. So most of medical decision-making should be done by algorithm. Most admissions decisions should be done by algorithm. And they will be fair as long as they've been designed to be fair. Why is that? Well, algorithms can't tell what you look like. And so the biggest bias in our society is attractive people do better. And, you know, uh, algorithm won't, won't fall for that one. So I'm pro-algorithm. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I don't think that some of the social media sites aren't doing evil. They are. But we could have a, a very long and very boring conversation about antitrust policy and whether there's a way to regulate something like Facebook. I, I think we better go to Q&As. Let's have a short and exciting conversation there about how to nudge people in how they may consider their use of social media. For example, it's interesting, you know, you, you talk a lot about new norms and how, how could we consider how individuals use social media and how nudge might be able to help there if we think, as you seem to be suggesting, that there's a very much more complicated regulatory government discussion about antitrust, for example, about affecting the actual social media giants themselves. But what about as individuals? 
how you may nudge people to maybe put their phones down every now and again and go and look at some trees? Well, you know, my, my phone tells me how much time I spent looking at it last week. That's, an, that's a nudge. I could imagine programs that would sort of re, re-algorithm the feed I get on Twitter or Facebook. And, the, you know, those sites, to varying degrees, have talking points about trying to make sure that people aren't spreading complete falsehoods. But, and I don't think that they're doing a great job of that, especially Facebook, but I also don't know exactly how to fix it. Richard, as you say, let's go to some questions. Let's um, kick off with a question from Stella. And she asks, why is behavioral economics so called when it doesn't seem to have that much to do with economics? Is that a fair well, criticism, uh, Richard? I don't know. But that's no, Stella's point. I, I, I think that's, uh, how shall I say? I think that's a misinformed view. It's, it's probably sampling from the wrong popular books. Lots of things have become gotten called behavioral economics that have nothing to do with economics or nothing to do with behavioral economics. If you, and I don't recommend this, but if people wanted to see where the research is in behavioral economics, they'll find it in every top economics journal. And the articles will look very off-putting and very much about economics. If I were to criticize where the field is right now, I would be inclined to say behavioral economics could be a little more behavioral. But certainly the the field, first of all, the field is done exclusively, 99%, by economists. And this is a surprise. When Kahneman and Tversky and I were dreaming about this and talking about it 40 years ago, we thought the field would be interdisciplinary because you're two psychologists and one very, very young economist. And we thought, okay, it's going to be got teams like us talking and creating a new interdisciplinary thing. Psychologists find economics boring. And so they haven't really entered the field. So, but there, there are, there are books that have been written by people who don't know anything about economics and TED talks given by some of those people that has nothing to do with behavioral economics. Isn't that a bit of the frustration, Richard, for you, that behavioral economics has, has almost, maybe in the wrong hands, as you suggest, become almost pop economics, and that somehow towels in baths and where you put fresh fruit in a supermarket and it has slightly undermined the, the, the substantial importance of behavioral economics as a discipline. Well, I don't think it... So I agree with that. The amusing thing is people now think that the original Freakonomics book was a behavioral economics book. And they think that in spite of the fact that it was just the opposite. The theme of that book and this, the theme of Steve Levitt's research 
was look how much we can do with very standard economics and especially incentives in interesting domains like sumo wrestling and detecting cheating. And I'm very good friends with both Dubner and Levitt. They're amused by that. Dubner has gotten very interested in behavioral economics. I've been on his podcast many times. And, but that's not behavioral economics. Neither is predictably irrational, the author of which wouldn't know which way a supply curve and demand curve slope. So in the popular media, there is this misconception. So it goes. In, in the professional world, I, th I think there are some economists who sneer at the field because of this, but there are young behavioral economists in every top department around the world, and they're doing very good economics. We should learn how to use nudge to nudge people towards a better understanding of what behavioral economics actually is. That'd be a great thing to do. Let's go to another question. Great talk. Thank you very much, Sakari, for that. Yeah. And the question is this. How should policymakers decide when to use a nudge to change people's behavior and when to use more traditional blunt weapon policies such as raising taxes? Now, Richard, you've touched on climate change as already in our, in our talk, but are there other areas where you can give advice to policymakers about when you have to make those types of uh, decisions? Well, let me go back to something we mentioned very, right at the beginning, which is I think policymakers need to think about the choice architecture as a big picture. So, you know, be it COVID or climate change or, or what have you, if, if they think about that, and this is like a wide angle lens, then there are various policy levers that you can use and which ones you should use will depend on the problem. When, when David Cameron created the first so-called nudge unit, behavioral insight team, and I was served as a an advisor to them, when we were starting to go around talking to various ministers, every conversation I was in would start by, tell me what your big problems are, and then we'll help think about what you might do. The second thing I would do, stress, is the one thing all of, there are supposed to be 400 of these nudge units around the world. I can't attest to whether that's accurate, but there are there are certainly a lot of them. The one thing they all have in common is they all do testing. And if you want to find out what works, you want to test. And some things that you thought work turn out not to. But that, that that's the only the way. And, you know, the one of the challenges of dealing with COVID is that it's all happening so fast. So lots of people said things in March or April of 2020 that now look remarkably stupid. And I advise giving people a little bit of a break and thanking yourself that you're lucky stars that no one had a tape recorder say, listening to what you were saying at the time. Because if you didn't say anything stupid about COVID, you just weren't talking. 
So this is a something that's been a moving target, and that's made it a challenge to everybody. Um, and so we're hopefully there won't be another pandemic, but if there is, we will have learned some things, and maybe governments are learning a bit about how to deal with a crisis. The problem is, and this is true of governments and of other large organizations, there's not enough institutional memory. So, you know, Barack Obama leaves and Donald Trump comes and there's an entirely new team with obviously very different sense of policy goals. Now Biden comes in and it's very much a similar team to Obama's, but they spend the first year undoing what the Trump team did. And it, it would be nice if there was more institutional memory. And one thing I like about the UK system versus the US is the UK civil service goes up much higher. A U.S. president has a couple thousand political appointments. I don't think the prime minister has as many as a hundred. So, I, and there's no cabinet secretary in the U.S. And the cabinet secretaries I got to meet, uh, like Gus O'Donnell, uh, more of those, please. Thank you, Richard. I'm going to go on to the... Amadeo, you get the prize for the best question of the evening thus far. Fascinating conversation, he says, Richard. So again, um, thank you. Can nudge theory be applied to child rearing or to dealing with a recalcitrant partner? <laughs> Both, please. Children first and then recalcitrant partners. I'm going to pass on the second one. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to let you. I'm a, I'm a brutal <laughs> TV interviewer. Uh, okay, so... I. Uh, okay, I'm, uh, then I'll lead with that. Here's what I uh, tell my students. Uh, when I talk about overconfidence, I point out that about half of all marriages fail and that essentially no couple, when they're sharing their vows, thinks their chance of divorce is anything like 0.5. They probably don't think it's as high as 0.05. So I give some advice, and my main advice is you can't be happier than your spouse. This is a mathematical theorem. Your happiness is equal or less than the happiness of your spouse. So if you remember that, you have a better chance. And, and the corollary is trying to be happier than your spouse is just stupid and futile. As for child rearing, it's been a while since I did that, though I do have I do have grandchildren. I think it's all about nudging. My youngest daughter, who has the youngest grandchildren, would give a better answer to this question. She's a keen reader of Nudge and has children who are four and eight and is thinking about this a lot. You're you're just trying to give kids a chance to thrive. And, you know, I, I think if I'm going to give one kind of fortune cookie like I did with the marriage, it's I think you have to give kids practice making decisions. 
And if parents don't give kids any chances to fail, then as soon as the kids get out of their hands, they will fail. So you want to give people practice and feedback and love. And then, you know, read chapter of Nudge every night. Yes. <laughs> There's your next book right there, Richard. Well, you know. Counseling uh, for couples. I'm going to write. I've literally written that down. I right. must not be happier than my partner. Very, very good point. And shouldn't try to be. And second, practice decision making. So that's your next book right there. So that's, that's at least well, one thing I, you've achieved I, I turn, in this house. My, I'm, I'm friends with Emily Oster, who has a series of books about child rearing and uh i'll let her write that i think i can see a next partnership okay adam good question do you think that nudges that have a moral dimension to them can be effective for example can nudges that remind people of their moral responsibilities to act pro-socially with regards to environmental behavior or face mask wearing help increase those behaviors you know, I'm going to give the usual answer of it depends. My, my sense, so people will respond differently to messages depending on their proclivities. So a churchgoer likely will respond if the clergyman, uh, the clergy, whatever the proper term for that is, makes a moral argument for why you should be vaccinated or wear a mask. But the anti-vaxxers will probably respond adversely to, to being scolded. And who are you to tell me what's moral? So I, I think messaging is very difficult. And again, I'd go back to testing. You know, for, for better or for worse, this, this sort of thing is very much like advertising. And, you know, somebody like R Rory Sutherland, who's an advertising guru for Ogilvy and an early adopter of behavioral economics, his job is to sell soap or whatever. And selling vaccines and masks is the government's job. And the one thing I would say is the the morality has to be honesty and transparency. And that should be true for governments and it should be true for teachers and healthcare providers and, and firms. If, if I'm a financial advisor and I'm recommending that you take up the funds for which I get paid the largest kickback, then I'm not doing my fiduciary duty. So we all have a fiduciary duty to anybody who listens to us. And that could be our children. And uh, for me, it's my students. And for you, it's anybody who reads or listens to what you say. And Honesty and transparency is the best. You make a lot around transparency, which is a very important theme in the book. We only have a few more minutes, so maybe some slightly quicker, quick fire uh, questions now. Do you think, this is from Anonymous, um, so they haven't got their name, but um, do you think nudges are effective over longer periods of time? Do you see depreciation in their impact? For example, your weekly phone usage report having more of an impact when it's new or novel, yet over time becomes ignored. 
Therefore, are nudges most successful if they form a habit? So I will try to answer that quickly. And the answer, one answer is the most successful and permanent nudges are when you can set it and forget it. So automatically rolling people into a pension plan and a default investment strategy works really well because there's inertia and people set it and forget it. They The same doesn't work for an alarm clock. <laughs> it, if there was an alarm clock that you could set for, you know, 5.30 and never change it, no one would buy it. <laughs> so uh, that's the, it depends. What are the next areas of research in behavioral economics, Robert asks? We've touched on climate change. We've touched on COVID. What are the, what's the big area for you, Richard? One area that you think can really, could really be helped by a firm understanding of nudge and behavioral economics? One thing we talk about in the book that I think England has gotten wrong is uh, organ donation policy. And uh, we, I won't go into the details, but I think there was a decision made by the Cameron government to adopt what we call prompted choice, which is encourage people to sign up to be an organ donor and uh, make it easy. And uh, England and Wales switched to a policy called presumed consent, which I think is a mistake. My reading of the evidence is that will reduce the number of organs that are donated. But to get the details, you're going to have to read the chapter. Very good sell for a very, very good book. Final question, last minute. In your view, is there any link between nudge and slow system two thinking as posited by your very good friend, Dan Kahneman? Sure. You know, I think... Again, let let me go back to the theme I've stressed today, which is we need to think about choice architecture from the big picture. So think about how high school kids are planning their future. That should be a system to a slow thinking process but it's going to be influenced by all kinds of things. And people may go to university because of the person they met on a campus visit, which is the opposite of informative. And so we're on all big, important questions. There is long-term stuff that people will think about when they have a chance but they can easily be sidetracked by, by little things. And we, we should do what we can to give people the time and information to do some slow thinking. Fantastic, Richard. Sadly, our wonderful hour together is up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, frankly, for fully revising Nudge. It is one of the books of the 21st century, and it was lovely to reread 
the parts of it that are taken from the original book, but also to hear your new thinking as well. So we really appreciate it and we appreciate you joining us. Thank you, the audience, for being with us for the past hour and hearing such wise words uh, delivered so beautifully by uh, Richard. And thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event. Thank you, Kama.